Fortress Canine Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to, I believe, this is episode 82 of the Protection Dog Podcast, where we offer an alternative to conventional training methods and philosophy. I'm your host, Joel Riles, and today we are actually going to be sharing an interview uh, that I did with Pat Watson on his podcast, Uncensored Tactical. If you haven't listened to that before and you are interested in tactical-y stuff, you like that word, um, go check him out. He's got some good stuff, Uh, got a very mild, laid-back demeanor, and kind of gets into a lot of uh, the issues in the tactical world, um, the bureaucratic issues that are often connected to or associated with the tactical world, that sort of thing. Um, But on this one, um, I'm over on his podcast. Uh, The audio is mostly good, um, just like the uh, interview I did of him for my podcast a couple weeks ago. Um, It's a little sketchy because we basically did them back to back, one after the other. And um, so I was still driving in a rented RV. I had my phone mounted on one of those uh, magnet mounts, but it's the ones that just sit on the dash. And, uh, and so we did the best we could. I think most of the audio is pretty good, um, but hopefully it is better than the last one. Uh, we were getting closer to Jacksonville, so I had better connection for most of this interview. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, before we jump into that, let's talk about today's sponsor. Today's sponsor is Canine Academy Online. Canine Academy Online is helping make dog training easy. If you have a dog uh, that you want to train in uh, obedience up to off-lead obedience, uh, advanced agility work, we are building out uh, protection training, service dog training, search and rescue, uh, tracking type training, uh, as well as some tactical training. Uh, all of that stuff is being built out. All of the obedience is already fully built in. And uh, you can check that out at canineacademyonline.com. So I hope you guys enjoy this interview. Cool. So if you're listening, uh, in the beginning of this episode here, we can assure you, well, we can hope that the audio will get better as we continue recording, but we're going to try and struggle through it. Um, I think the content value is going to be really high. So this is at least your third appearance on the show. Um, you want to give a quick overview and tell people who you are once you do? Sure. So uh, my name is Joel Riles. I have a company called Fortress Canine. Um, and uh, we also have a training side of the house that we call Canine Academy uh, with an online training uh, video-based kind of a training platform uh, for people who already have dogs and for people who are interested in purchasing dogs. We sell puppies and trained dogs. Uh, the breeds that we work with are the German Shepherd, the Belgian Malinois, and the Dutch Shepherd. And uh, I like to say that our lines, uh, especially of the Dutch Shepherd and the Malinois, are um, they're working dogs with an off switch. So um, they're, they're not the hyper-crazy uh, dogs being bred for sports that are like run through a running fan for a ball. Um, they have a little bit more of a thought process to them. And been doing that for almost 20 years um, and uh, was 15 years in the military. So had a couple of combat deployments. Uh, so was able to kind of get a better grasp on what actual fighting and combat looks like. And uh, have been trying to apply that to the training and uh, the, the prep for the dogs uh, in terms of protection dogs and, and how to prepare them to do actual real world protection. 
And I remember the I, I found you. So for, the, for those that haven't heard the first two episodes that Joel was on, I found Joel when I was looking for someone, anyone to interview on the show for canine stuff. And I thought Joel was out in either Alaska or somewhere else in the Northwest. And it turned out he was right down the street a couple hours away. So uh, I actually went out to the facility. And the thing that surprised me the most about Joel and his dogs was um, me and my girlfriend at the time, we got out of our car and I saw like, I don't know, 10 to 12 huge, fully grown shepherd dogs. And I thought, oh, my God, they're going to run over to me and they're going to jump on me. And they're probably going to nip at me, and it's going to scare the shit out of me, and this canine thing is not for me. And we stood there, and the dogs completely ignored our existence. They walked around by themselves. They minded their own uh, minded their own business. They were crazy polite. Um, and then we you know, donned the bite suit and did a, a couple bite takes, and they were ferociously uh, uh, effective. And as soon as Joel said, okay, the training's over, I walked up, pet the dog, stood on top of the dog and uh, everything was completely stable and calm and uh, really obedient. So, uh, and Joel, you say it all the time, but I think some of the things, and now I say it to clients too, the things that are the most impressive about Fortress Canine Dogs is not always what they can do, but it's sometimes what they don't do that other dogs do. Yeah, you know, it's, it's surprising to me how little emphasis is given to dog stability. That's what we call it anyway which is basically not biting when you're not supposed to bite, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're going to train a dog to bite, especially to bite people, um, then it must only bite when there's a valid reason to do so. And I tell my clients that means if you're physically attacked or you as the human with the human brain decide, hey, I need to send my dog to bite this person. Right. So maybe you're in a verbal confrontation in a parking lot and they draw a weapon. Well, then maybe that's the time to send your dog, um, you know, without that person necessarily approaching you per se. Um, but, there, you know, there, so there are certain times and places for certain things. But ninety nine point nine percent of your life is you and your dog and your family and your friends and your house just doing life together. Right. You don't um, you don't get your concealed weapons permit and buy a handgun and run around just shooting it everywhere you go. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, you go to the range, hopefully in practice, just like you go to training and practice with your dog, you know, doing scenarios and biting and fighting and all of that. But, um, in terms of your, you know, just your normal life, you, hopefully you never use your concealed carry weapon to, to shoot another human being. Cause if you never killed somebody, you probably don't want to, you don't want to go through that experience. But, um, yeah, so, you know, a lot of people will come and train with us from the sport world um, or that have, you know, done – funny because a lot of people will say, well, I've never done sport training, and then they get to the field, and I'm like, yeah, all that was sport training. And they're like, what? I don't understand. So, I don't know, maybe you want to talk about the difference between the two a little bit. Um, I don't want to run off on a tangent. No, go for it. Um, well, I'll steer a little bit here. Um so Joel and I were both former military and former law enforcement. And one of the things that attracted me the most to Fortress K9 and to you, Joel, was um, I knew that you had a background in both of those fields. And I loved that you said, if I brought military canine training to you and I brought police dog training to you as a private citizen that wanted a dog for you know personal security, that would be a failure, basically, in so many words. 
which is those dogs have specific jobs. If we just did copy paste, it wouldn't be a good fit. So I like that you had a, a really level ground up approach to a, what do we need the dogs to do for your situation? And B, how do we meet that with specific training instead of blindly going, I was in the military. I train military dogs and you could buy a military dog for me, which would be fucking stupid. So uh, you want to speak to that a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah. So the, one of the reasons that I'm, I won't say I'm opposed to sports because if people want to go do sports with their dogs, I don't care. I agree. Um, and, and in fact, people buy puppies from me and go do sports with their dogs. And I'm like, Hey, if that's what you want to do. Go for it. Like knock yourself out. Um, the dogs enjoy it. Uh, it, but the issue I have with it from a protection perspective is it's most of the sports are foundationally, they were developed as ways to test military or law enforcement dogs prior to them, like going out on the street. So, you know, if they needed to track, then, you know, Schutzen was, you know, the, what was used in Germany. And they said, Hey, you know, our dogs need to track. They need to fight. They need to be able to do basic tasks, like pick things up. And so they developed, you know, basically a test, go pick up that wooden uh, dumbbell and bring it over to me, go bite that guy when I tell you to, and Hey, track this guy and find him. Right. And, um, then for law enforcement, it's you know, the, the primary task or purpose of a law enforcement canine is apprehension, um, and, and some level of detection. So they typically will, uh, deploy a dog if somebody's running away. Right? And the purpose of the dog is to catch that person because they're faster than humans and grab a hold of them with your mouth so that, number one, they don't want to fight. And number two, you, you're holding them for me until I, the officer, can catch up and put handcuffs on that person. Um, and, you know, I, I tell my clients this a lot in, in deliveries is if you ever deploy your dog on somebody running away, they better have your kid in their arms. <laughs> right. Not a TV. Not something they took from your house because when the dog comes up behind somebody, you know, you've probably seen tons of the videos. A lot of times when people are running and the dog bites them, the, the impact of the dog hitting them in mid run causes them to stumble and fall. And that's, that's very common. And, um, well, our dogs are trained to fight human beings. They're not apprehension dogs, so they don't just bite and hold on. You know, that's where that kind of whole concept comes from. The bite and hold, um, is, they, they want the dogs to bite a hold of somebody and then just hold on because their primary purpose is apprehension. And it causes less damage, not more, right? Now, it's painful because you're typically biting. They train the dogs to bite in muscle, uh, high muscle areas, a bicep, a forearm, uh, a calf muscle, things like that. And, um, and so it, there's pain, but they bite in one spot. They kind of crush in that spot. So they do cause bruising and, you know, injury. Um, but they don't release and do it again and again and again. And they also don't want them biting with their canines because canines puncture and then tear. Right. And so they're, they're trying to do the job while minimizing, um, injury and, and culpability of lawsuits. I don't know. Is culpability the right word? I think that's the wrong word there. Yeah, li they're, they're, liability. They're yeah. liability. Uh, they don't want to get sued. And when you've got a guy who's got pictures of, you know, rips up and down his legs and arms all over his body, there, you can make a pretty decent case for excessive force. You as a private citizen, the only time you're going to use your dog is if your life is in danger. And my, 
when we deliver our dogs and we train our clients, you know, I tell them my recommendation to you, there's, there's never a 100% answer, you know, this way or that way. But my recommendation to you is you do not use your dog unless you already have deadly force authorization in your state. Um, because then it's easy to justify the lesser force of the dog. So, you know, if you're a small woman and a large man is approaching you in a very hostile manner, you can tell him to stay back. And if he gets within six feet, your dog can engage because you can um, articulate, you can explain in words um, that you were in fear of your life at that point. Right. And in, in most states that would allow you to defend yourself with a firearm, such as Florida or Texas, um, you would be able to, to shoot that person at that point. And uh, so you go, I was using lesser force initially because I was trying not to kill somebody. And, uh, and you know, the dog did that for me or they didn't. And you have to escalate to a firearm potentially. But um, it's a whole different scenario than apprehension. And so in that situation, the person's already looked at you. They've seen that you have a dog. They, you know, you have a dog that's a fairly intimidating looking dog. And they decided I'm still going to attack this person. They're a very high risk threat to you. Whether they're not mentally stable, whether they're on drugs, or whether they're just really intent on attacking you anyway, um, you need to cause as much damage to that person as fast as possible to end the threat. And then you need to be able to immediately stop that damage from happening um, when the threat is over. And so that's what we train our dogs to do. They bite with their canines like dogs are supposed to. They rip, tear, and thrash to cause maximum injury so that you no longer can use your hands and potentially legs. And then as soon as I tell that dog to stop doing that, they stop and they either come back to my side or they continue to keep an eye on the bad guy, depending on what I tell them to do. But the purpose and the idea and the concept is you have different applications, different uses. Um, and so therefore you need a different approach. You know, we don't teach, civilians shoot no shoot the same way that we teach officers shoot no shoot right just like mm -hmm. uh we were recording a, a little while ago another podcast are you still there by the way yeah i got you okay perfect um and uh and we mentioned an active shooter scenario right and the idea was and we we learned this as law enforcement officers if you are go into an active shooter whether it's a school or an office building or whatever Anybody who's not dressed like you, who's holding a gun, is a bad guy. Um, yeah, but we would pretty, also pretty good baseline, yeah, 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 right. But we also would train if you're off duty and you go into an active shooter situation. As soon as you end the threat, you put your gun down and back away from it, right? Or you yep. put it away, you hide it so that it's not visible, because if the officers in uniform walk around the corner and see you holding a gun. They're going to assume you're the one doing the shooting of the, of the innocent people. Mm -hmm. and there's a high probability you get shot, right? Some people would carry their, their uh, badges, their kind of concealed badges on a necklace kind of a thing. And they would say, put it on your back, right? Well, I'm like, yeah, but that doesn't help me if they walk around in front of me because just because they see me, my face doesn't mean they're going to know that I'm an officer off duty. Um, I saw two you, examples of that this week where a citizen off duty or a citizen involved in a active shoot who made the right shoot got killed by responding people. And then a, a off duty cop in plain clothes got killed for responding and doing the right thing. So it happens all the time. Yes. Yes. And so, you know, to the greatest extent possible, we want to train the individual person for 
the situation that they're going to face. If you're in law enforcement, you're going to be arresting people. That's probably where most of your, your risk comes in, in the process of determining if somebody committed a crime and then conducting the arrest. If you're a private citizen, then, you know, don't, first of all, don't go to stupid places and do stupid things with stupid people. And 99% of all your problems will go away. <laughs> and then in addition to that, if you end up in a situation, especially if you weren't doing stupid things with stupid people in stupid places, then you're being actively attacked and you just simply need to engage that, that threat. And you need to be able to do it quickly, violently, and then stop the injury as soon as possible when, when the threat is over. So I, I think that as a tactical podcast, people are probably excited for tactics, um, especially for dogs and biting. So uh, I have a question again, to kind of follow up that first statement about military and police training for dogs. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, and I know we've discussed this before, so I'm probably not wrong, but is it common for police dogs and military dogs to bite their own handlers and bite the wrong person and to not come off of a bite even when they're told to? Yeah, so uh, I'm going to try to address each of those three. So I'm going to be like, <laughs> okay. what was the other one? No, I got it so right down. Biting, good. biting their own handler, um, it happens a lot. Um, I've, I've seen it happen numerous times. Uh, times and there's a couple of reasons for it. One is, uh, especially in the military, they were trying to fix this when I was getting out back in 2014. Uh, so it may be less of a problem now. Um, but the military assigned dogs to a unit, and then people would come in and they would spend, you know, anywhere between two and six years at that unit, um, and then they would go on to another unit. So every couple years, the dogs were getting new handlers. Uh, which meant there was not much of a bond being built between the dog and the handler. So in the middle of the dog fighting, if a handler stepped in or tried to do something that the dog didn't like, it was not at all uncommon for the dog to target the handler, um, even if they realized after the fact that, oh, I probably shouldn't have done that. Um, but they would target their handler and they would bite their handlers. This happens a lot. Um, you mentioned the dog's not outing when they're told mm -hmm. this. Do we use the command out? And when we say out to a dog, that means stop biting that thing, right? Whether that's a person or whether that's a, a toy that you're playing with or whatever. It's basically take that thing out of your mouth. And, um, and so a lot of police dogs are trained to only out by the use of what they call a breaker bar. Um, or some of them will use pressure on the neck. And they'll use certain collars, like the rigid collars that we like were actually designed for this purpose. We don't use this technique, but the collar was originally designed um, to be able to grab the collar and twist the rigid edge into the dog's neck, into their trachea, basically. And that triggers a, a natural opening of their mouth. And, um, and then they will out the, you know, from the person they're biting. Uh, a breaker bar is basically, there's a couple different versions of them, but you basically take something really stiff. You stick it in the dog's mouth and then you twist it to create an uncomfortable sensation in the dog's mouth and they let go. Uh, things like that. Well, sometimes when you're doing that, the dog is in a very highly amped up state and they turn and bite their handlers. And I've seen that numerous times. Uh, and when they bite, it's serious. I mean, they bite their handlers right on the hands. And oh. uh, if you've never been bit in the hands and not, you, know, you have. And I have yeah. <laughs> doing training. Um, it is a it is a highly emotional event. Now I, I've gotten used to it now, and I've thankfully never had a significant injury. But because um, we train our dogs to target hands on bad guys, 
because it's a terrible place to be bitten, right? You, you get bit in the hand, you're like, holy crap, that's how I do everything. From wipe my butt to shoot my gun, I need my hands. So um, people naturally do not want to be bit in the hands. And when a dog that's been trained to, to fight high pressure and hold bites you in the hand and crushes your hand, oh, yeah. that is, um, that's a very devastating injury. So the, the biting handlers and not outing um, are common. Uh, they're, they're problematic from my perspective. Uh, of course, there's a reason law enforcement do it. I just go, I understand why you do it. I just don't think it's a good idea. Now, of course, there's, they shouldn't ever bite their handlers. That's just a byproduct of their training. Um, biting other officers or other military people. Yeah, this is something that I've yelled at and yelled about for years, and people don't seem to get it. Um, <laughs> dogs are are pattern driven creatures, right? They they uh, they pick up patterns very quickly, and then they they follow patterns that we set. That's actually you know one of the ways that we train them is we set patterns that we want, and then the dogs will follow those patterns uh, for us. And um, <laughs> I love the pictures of. It, you see a lot more of the pictures, at least I do, of the military people doing this, but law enforcement officers do it all the time, too, is, you know, first of all, they have just the sleeve on because, you know, the dog's been trained to just bite that one spot and hold on. So they don't wear full suits typically. And uh, and then they're they're in their uniform, right? They're in their full uniform with a sleeve on, and then the dog is biting them. And I'm like, do you not see it? Do you not see it? Uh, and then they wonder why the dogs bite officers on calls and things like that and i'm like because you trained them to you trained them to target uniforms because the, the people they bite in training all the time are wearing uniforms how do you not see this so that that's like one of the things that i'll yell at my phone for when i see it on instagram or whatever and my wife just looks at me and shakes her head and it's like he's being crazy again <clears throat> so yeah that is a common problem but it's one that's so easy to fix um and then the lack of doing stability and again, that's what we call the dog not biting things they're not supposed to bite, right? If it's a stable dog, it only bites when there is a threat and it only bites uh, when you tell it to bite. And so, um, you know, a lack of doing stability, which stability can, you know, there's lots of different stability drills and exercises you can do with dogs. You can wear bite equipment and irritate the dog, but not actually be aggressive or a threat and see if they'll bite the equipment. Right? And if they do, the, the handler should be telling the dog to leave it alone. And if they bite when they're not supposed to, they get a correction and they get basically told, knock that off. Don't do that. And you, you run these drills back and forth where there's a threat and then there's not a threat. And then there's a threat and then there's not a threat. And whenever the handler tells the dog to leave it alone, unless you actually attack that handler, the dog is to leave it alone and not bite. Uh, there's stability drills around other dogs. Right. So this is a big one for us. And we work dogs around dogs. And You've probably seen, if you go over to my at Fortress Canine uh, Instagram channel or Facebook, you see us um, often we'll have videos of multiple dogs deploying together, right? Fighting mm -hmm. side by side on a single bad guy. And, um, and the reason they can do that is because they're stabilized around each other. They don't target each other uh, and get in dog fights. And, and that was a big problem I had when I was in the military. Uh, I had a kennel uh, as a military commander and they couldn't. Well, they wouldn't in the beginning bring out multiple dogs to train at once because they would fight um, even just obedience in the obedience area. Right. And I was like, OK, we're fixing that because that's a problem. <laughs> that's a liability that, you know, we're going to get people bit. They shouldn't. 
dogs will get injured when they're not supposed to. And uh, so we brought a, a company and they, I couldn't do it myself because, you know, I was the commander. I, I didn't know what I was talking about. So we, we got this handled. So uh, which I appreciate because most officers are idiots. But um, so we brought a company in and did some training to, to work the stability there. And they were just shocked that you could even do that. Right. They went through Lackland and, and got their dogs and did their training there and everything. And, and they were just it was pounded in them. No, dogs cannot be together. They will fight. And we had dogs laying on top of each other, on top of bite suits with people in them and not doing anything they weren't supposed to, right? And it's like, yeah, that should be normal. That shouldn't be like, oh my goodness, crazy, how did you do that? That should just be normal dog training is that the dogs can be around one another and not bite each other or bite things they're not supposed to. So that's a big deal for us. Um, and, you know, it, it's really just basic training and basic um, you know, how you bring the dogs up, uh, bite work shouldn't be a game. So that's another big problem I have with sports is that bite work is often a game in the sport. Uh, that's how they bring them into it with tugs and things like that. And then they wonder why the dogs will just randomly bite people. Um, it's like, because they thought you were engaging in the game. Whereas with our dogs right from the beginning, when they're little puppies, they basically have a choice. You hurt me or I hurt you. And, um, you know, and it's at puppy level, and then we progress that as the dog advances. But because of that, our dogs never bite as a game. They only bite when there's a threat. And uh, and so, you know, up to this point, and I've been selling trained dogs for 15 years now, um, we've never had a call and got told, hey, my dog bit somebody they weren't supposed to bite. So... <laughs> When I was a kid, I grew up around, uh, I grew up basically in the police department. Um, this was pre 9-11 and uh, my dad kind of made his way up the ranks and I was, I basically had free reign as a, uh, like a high school age kid to just walk in and out of the police department. And I rode in the car with him a lot as a kid and I loved when the canine cops showed up, but I was always told, do not go near that dog. Do not pet that dog. That dog will bite you. That dog bites his own handler. So watch out. And I always thought, you know, that's kind of odd. And now as an adult that I have a little bit more critical thinking, reasoning, and a little bit more of a language to kind of understand the problem, I thought, I, I think now, well, fuck Joel, would I buy a gun that accidentally shoots me on occasion? Like, that would be faulty. Like, that would be a bad tactical move. So, you know, when you, when you ask these parallel questions, it's just fucking insane to me that agencies and even, well, I understand bureaucracy, trust me, but it's it's still insane to me that an agency would go, yeah, we know that that happens. It's fine. Don't worry about it. We don't want to fix that. Yeah. But I, I would equate it, you know, because I, I, well, way back when, when I first started training dogs, so before I was selling trained dogs, I was just learning. You know, I, I was introduced to this world from a, um, from a very, very high-end military perspective. So not the way most military working dogs are used, which is basically just uh, explosive and narcotics detection. Uh, and basically patrolling with MPs. Um, that's the extent to most military working dogs' usefulness in the military. Um, I was saying, you know, hey, you know, we actually trained to exit torpedo tubes in submarines with dogs. We trained waterborne operations with dogs. We repel with our dogs. Uh, we didn't actually jump with our dogs, but we trained to jump with our dogs on the repel towers and things like that. And it's like, you guys can do all this stuff with dogs. Why aren't dogs in every special operations unit in the world? 
And I was told, you're stupid, you're crazy, that can't happen, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And now, of course, every special operations unit in the world has dogs. And um, I'm like, I've been saying this stuff since like 2000. And um, so, and I was you know, told I was stupid and all this other kind of stuff. And now they're all doing it. But it still, it shocks me that, okay, so you see a guy, you know, in free fall doing a halo jump with a dog. And what's the dog got on it? A muzzle see a guy doing a, a helo cast out of the back of a you know chinook or whatever and he's got his dog on the harness and he's jumping out what's the dog got on a muzzle and i'm like why do you guys muzzle your dog well i know why they muzzle their dogs because they'll get <laughs> queued up in mid free fall by their own dog and i'm like how is that acceptable that would be like yeah we got this team member you know on our seal team or cag team or special ops team and every once in a while, he just draws his pistol and starts shooting at us. But it's okay, because other than that, he's, he's really good. And I'm like, how is yeah. it acceptable <laughs> that uh, the dog acts that way when it would never be acceptable for a human to act that way? And the justification is, this is the only justification I've ever received, is, well, if we did the stability the way you do, the dogs wouldn't be ferocious enough. And I'm huh. like, okay, so have you ever been in the suit getting chewed on by my dogs? And would you want to be out of the suit getting chewed on by them? Like when, when you go to ground fighting my dogs, they target your face and neck. So I'm not sure how that's not ferocious enough for you, which is why we never let our decoys go to ground unless we're doing muzzle work because we don't want people getting bit in the face and neck. But, um, it's like, I don't, I don't get the philosophy other than the way that they train is specifically designed around how fast can I get the dog from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. And the fastest way to do that is just to make them insane or crazy to bite things and then just basically point them in a direction and let them go. It's wild. And, um, and, I, and I think you and I both know why. And we said it a couple of times. It's the bureaucracy is the problem. It's not, sometimes it's not even the individual dog or the operator. It's that if you were to do stability training, your bureaucracy would punish you if you were to solve a problem. That, yes. Well, it, it, it's like in the dog world, you've got two, two different bureaucracies, both creating their own part of the issue. So you've got the bureaucracy of the agency that's, that's getting the dog, right? So whether it's law enforcement, military, whatever. Uh -huh. And then you have the bureaucracy of the dog training world itself. And, yeah. um, it, it, like each of the sports that kind of, you know, are the, are the funnel that brings these dogs into the, the law enforcement or military world, they, they all have their own version of the bureaucracy, but their version is, this is how you do it, right? Like the firearms instructor that says, this is how you hold your firearm. You put, you know, your hand all the way up on the beaver tail, you wrap your fingers around and then you take your other hand and you squeeze and you push pull and whatever their version of your grip is, right? And then you go, okay, so what do I do if I'm sitting in my squad car buckled in and the guy that I need to shoot at is behind me? What grip do I use then? How does this grip work then? Well, the answer is it doesn't. And you have to use a different <laughs> grip in that scenario. But they, they just go, no, that doesn't happen. Hold the grip the way I told you to. No, don't let the dog reverse and target the weapon when it's being stabbed to death by the bad guy. Just hold on. No, don't, you know, uh, do this the intro training to the dog's bite work differently so that it will no longer bite police officers. Just do it the way I said. So it bites hard, you know, my version of quote unquote hard, whatever that is in their bureaucracy. And it's like, you've got double stacked bureaucracy on bureaucracy. And oh, I love it. when you ask just these normal questions, 
well, would you accept it if a officer did that? No. Then why do you accept it if the dog does it? Well, because this is just what dogs do. No, it isn't. See, my dogs don't do that. It's not just what dogs do. You're doing it wrong. Oh, your dogs, you know, have a weak bite. We're not going to listen to you. And I'm like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah. Here's the bruises I have every week through my suit, but my dogs bite weak. Okay, I'll just move on. Uh, So I just learned it wasn't worth even dealing with the bureaucracy. Which is which is nice when you run your own show. Um, so let's segue into that. Sorry, let's we had a about... phone call come in there real quick, and I lost you for a second. Nope, no problem. I think we're good on this end. Uh, so let's talk about this thing that uh, a lot of people are surprised to hear. A lot of people that I think you and I both talk to, which is uh, my dog growls at people. My dog plays tug of war really strong. Uh, my dog will protect me when someone comes through the door that's not supposed to. So how many dogs have you seen on the field? What percentage-wise would you say dogs that have never engaged in bite work that come out to your field and then start biting a bad guy who's trying to hurt them? What would that uh, percentage be? It's about 0.0001%. Like maybe one dog <laughs> in 10,000 uh, will actually engage a, uh, a threat. So I, have, I use the terminology, there's a difference between protecting and being protective. That's great. Right? So it's, it's kind of like, I, I've never used this analogy before now, it just popped into my head. It's kind of like your 90-pound female protecting her children, right? A 90-pound female can kind of be ferocious and aggressive, but if you're a 220-pound muscle-bound man, you're just going to grab her and throw her away and grab the child and kidnap it if that's what you want to do, right? No matter how, quote-unquote, ferocious she is, unless she has a gun, of course, if she's just trying to, to beat you with her hands and yell and scream, you can just beat her into the ground with three or four punches and take the child. It, it doesn't matter if she wants to protect the child or not. She's incapable of it in that level of threat, assuming she doesn't force multiply herself with a weapon of some kind. So dogs are kind of similar. Um, Dogs will naturally growl and bark um, if someone enters their space that doesn't Mm -hmm. normally enter their space. So whether that's their home or a vehicle or something like that, um, they get used to who comes in there. Remember, they're pattern driven. So they get used to who gets in the vehicle. And if somebody new gets in the vehicle, um, then they may growl or bark at them. Right. Or if somebody approaches the vehicle, they may growl or bark. Or if somebody comes to the door of the house, they may growl or bark. Um, So that's what I call being protective. And there are many people who think, oh, that dog will bite me if I come over to it. So I'm going to stay over here Um, because we train dogs to do that a lot. I see it a lot that what happens in reality is I can I can do a couple of things. I can just basically ignore that dog. And then it will, um, it, it basically just says, oh, okay, I guess you're not a threat. And, and it just ignores me back. Um, or I can go after that dog in an aggressive manner and the dog will almost universally run. Right. We, we say it runs to the back of the house and pisses itself. <laughs> and because that's basically what they do. <clears throat> the same as if I took a, just an average person and I said, um, Let's just attack this guy out of the blue, right? Your average person, maybe, you know, 
a little bit of thought towards self-defense, um, but no real training or maybe a couple of, you know, self-defense classes. Maybe they did martial arts a long, long time ago, 20 years ago. And then out of the blue, they get attacked. How effective are they going to be in that attack? Probably not effective at all, right? Especially if you haven't um, trained yourself to overcome the universal phobia, which is interpersonal conflict. And, um, you know, in fact, it's, it's kind of hard to get people to fight you if you wanted to. Yeah. Uh, I, I always love the, the scene or the series of scenes in Fight Club when they have to go out and pick a fight and lose. And just getting the person to actually fight them back so they can lose is extremely difficult. And that's a, that's a real thing because people fear interpersonal conflict. They'll do almost anything they can to avoid it. And so dogs are similar if they've not been trained. And um, our, our training process basically walks the dog through overcoming that fear of engaging a threat. What happens with police dogs and dogs that have been brought up in the... Um, and the, the concepts of basically it's a tug game, right? Bite mm-hmm. and hold on and don't let go is uh, when I train with those dogs and I ask the people, do you want me to train your dog to reverse? That's what we call it when you release one arm and target the other arm, whether that arm is punching the dog or has a weapon in it or whatever. And, uh, and if they say, yes, I want you to teach my dog to reverse. I go, okay. In the beginning, all those dogs will do is they close their eyes and take the hit. And I have to literally, and different dogs are different depending on how much has been ingrained into them. But I I usually have to make the dog feel like it's about to be killed for it to let go and retarget. And uh, so, you know, if I'm using a metal training knife, I have to jab the dog in the ribs over and over and over again um, until the dog finally says, freaking, you're going to kill me, stop it, and they'll finally retarget the hand. And some of them, I, I have to stop because I'm like, I'm actually going to injure this dog if I keep doing that. And, and they're still not releasing, right? Because the objective is not to injure the dog, but to train the dog. And the training knife doesn't uh, penetrate the dog, but it hurts on their ribs. And so um, dogs are not, they're, they're naturally protective, but they do not naturally protect. It's, it's, a, it's a process to train the dog to deal with the stress of fighting a pinnacle predator and dogs are predators, but they're not a pinnacle predator like the human being is. So I, I tried, I mean, I, I explained that to a lot of people that ask. I got cops passing me. So sorry about those sirens. No, no problem. It's good. Uh, good new, good uh, atmosphere nuance here. Exactly. Uh, I explained this to quite a few people and I, uh, especially when people ask how early can I start training my dog for protection work? Um, and they ask, you know, how do you train a dog for protection work or what makes your type of protection work different than, you know, pick a different, you know, sports shuts and shits and whatever, however you say it. Um, so I explain to people a lot, the puppy process. So I say, mm-hmm. we don't start with the games of tug and the game of, you know, go bite this toy. I say, we start with a real bad guy and a real puppy and we we give the puppy some very specific philosophy maybe philosophy is the wrong word but we ingrain things into the dog's head Uh, some of those things are i don't have a choice i have to fight back that's one of the first ones right yes fleeing is not an option Um, and then there are certain uh benchmarks that the puppy even a even a really young puppy there's certain benchmarks that they will get to we can kind of put a new stake in the ground which are things like 
Okay, well, if the puppy lunges forward towards the bad guy, that's good. That's a new benchmark. Or if they start barking at the bad guy, that's good. Or if they nip at, even if they don't bite, you know, that's good. So we we reward them for those steps. And if they don't meet those steps or stay at that level, then the fight keeps coming. So uh, do you want to kind of walk through a little bit of that process so that people understand that you have to bring a dog into this bite work a certain way and you can't just say, go bite. Oh, you bit. Good job. Right. So... And, and we use this process whether we're taking a, a two-year-old dog uh, that's never bitten before and training uh-huh. a two-year-old dog or whether it's an eight-week-old puppy. Um, the, the level of force is a little bit different because, you know, a two-year-old dog, yeah. a, a little pinch doesn't, doesn't bother a two-year-old dog. A little pinch for a puppy is, like, traumatic, right, um, when you pinch their, their thigh or something like that. So, basically, um, you're, you're in, in our training method the handler their only job is to praise the dog when it does what it's supposed to do right so we don't pet the dogs first of all because in a fight you're not going to be petting the dog Um, but we praise them and let them know yes this is what you're supposed to be doing and then the, the person doing the training is actually the person that the dog is trying to fight with or that they're learning to fight with and um and so the the handler is telling the dog we use the command watch and so they're telling the dog, watch. Now, the, the first time they hear that word, they don't know what it means, right? But then whenever the dog does something that is moving in the direction of a watch, then they praise, good watch. And so initially, what I want the dog to do is to bark. That's usually the very first thing they'll do. And um, even if they're, they're not lunging forward yet, they may still be backing away but barking, right? And, um, and so we create an environment either by using a, a lead of a certain length and letting the dog wrap itself up around the handler's legs if they're continuing to back away mm-hmm. or using like a wall or something that the handler stands up against so that there's you know only so far the dog can go. And uh, <clears throat> so that way I can essentially corner the dog. And, um, and so what it does is it removes the flight from the fight or flight mechanism, right? So then the only thing left for the dog to do is to fight. And I, I give the dog an opportunity in the beginning to show some form of aggression. So I'm, I like when, when I do this, I literally in my mind, I kind of transform myself to, I am now a bad guy. I'm going to hurt you. And the dog senses that almost immediately. And, and you know, you get that when I try and get people into the mode, I'm like, you know, you're doing it right. When you get a tingle up your spine, that's the adrenaline shooting into your system. And, um, and so I, I approach the dog and I'm basically like, you know, my, my whole mannerism is I'm going to hurt you if you don't do something about it. And so I approach the dog in a very suspicious way, the dog, and, and I'm looking for some reaction from the dog and any reaction that I get from the dog, the handler rewards by saying, good watch. And I, the bad guy reward by acting scared, right. Or by, by backing away from the dog and and so depending on that dog's current level, if, if the dog's never done anything, then any movement in that direction gets rewarded. And usually the first time they do it, I kind of run off and I, I move on to the next dog. Right. And the handler is like, yeah, good job. You scared him off. And, um, and so the dog's like, whoa, like I barked at that bad guy and he ran away. Okay, cool. So whenever I see a bad guy, I bark at him and then it will progress. And then barking won't do it anymore. Right. So once you kind of build a little bit of confidence in the dog, then they they uh, 
start to bark. And I go, yeah, you're barking, but I'm not leaving yet. And you can kind of see the look in their face like, oh, no, it's not working. And, um, and so then what we do is <laughs> I start requiring them to essentially come to the end of the lead. Right. And we start introducing them to the idea of putting their teeth on a person. So most of our puppies, because the, the dogs that we breed, we train for this as puppies. Uh, I don't do this with an adult dog that I'm bringing in because they can cause serious injury. But my puppies, are their first bites are actually on me, on live flesh. They actually are biting my hands and arms. And, um, and so, you know, I've got all these scars all over my hands and arms from getting bit by puppies. But I want their, their very first initial impression to be, you don't bite a, a sleeve, you don't bite a pad, you don't bite these things. I'm biting the person. I'm trying to, I need to defend against that person. And so in order to do that, I need to bite that person. And then once they get strong enough, that I'm like, okay, yeah, I can't take that bite anymore without equipment. Then I start putting the equipment on. Um, and so we get the bark. Then we get the, the coming to the end of the lead and kind of lunging. Then we get the, I'm trying to bite you. I'm trying to put my teeth on you. And, and then I basically allow them to put their teeth on me. And, uh, and then we build from there. So that's the process. And at all of those steps, if they will fight, they win. If they don't fight, they get hurt in one way or another. And, um, and so that, that, you know, and it, of course the hurt is, it's a, a training pain, not a, I'm grabbing them and breaking their legs or stomping them up his head yeah. or anything like that. Yeah. It's a, it's basically just a, a small consequence for not fighting back. If you don't do something about it, I'm going to pinch you in the thigh. If you don't do something about it, I'm going to slap you on the snout. If you don't do something about it, I'm going to grab your tail, right? And then, you know, tails and thighs are very useful in this method because if you pinch a dog on the thigh, especially if you pinch it hard enough where it hurts, their natural instinct is to spin around and bite whatever it is that's hurting their thigh. And, um, and so when we're, if a dog is kind of slow to put its teeth on, you can grab their thigh and pinch it. And then when they swing around and bite you in the fingers, you basically, that's when they get the reward. You go, ah, it hurts. And their handler's going, good watch, good take. And then you run away because they bit you and they, they want to fight. Right. And they learn real quick. Yeah. Don't even let them get close to me with those hands because those hands hurt if they get a hold of me. So I need to bite them before he gets to me. And we've seen, you and I have both seen the videos where, uh, a third party, someone else will be doing their own uh, protection training. And the handler has the canine next to him. And the person in the bite suit walks up and they're kind of goofing and joking. And they're like, all right, bite the bad guy. And the dog's like, eh, okay, I'll bite a little bit. And you don't get the result that you want. And it's clear to us that, well, your bad guy is not acting like a bad guy. He's acting like a fucking goofball. So your dog really shouldn't be biting them or at least not ferociously. So uh, I, I like that mindset a lot that it's never a game. Um, and I think that, yeah. that gives the dog a lot of the correct stimulus. Yeah. And, you know, I, I often will say dogs reason at about the level of a three-year-old. So they can reason and they can problem solve, um, but they, they don't do anything at the level of, a, of an adult human. Right. So um, I don't want to give my three-year-old a loaded gun and then just leave them to make decisions on how to use that. 
right? Because they are going to make poor decisions and they're going to do something that either hurts themselves or, or other people. Uh, so if I'm going to give a three-year-old a loaded gun, I'm going to do it with a lot of supervision and a lot of um, limits in place. And I'm going to make sure that I control everything so that they're, they're not going to hurt themselves or somebody else. Right. That's, that's um, really good. Well, if I'm going to train a dog to injure human beings, um, now there, there's obviously differences between a three-year-old child and a, yeah. and a dog, <laughs> but you know, their, their reasoning ability to tell is somebody, is this person trying to hurt us right now? Or are they, you know, just being stupid, um, is very low. And so we use aggression. And so that's why for me, I want to feel that tingle up my spine because the dog can, we assume it's with their sense of smell, but, um, nobody knows 100% how they can detect this, but we know that they can detect hormonal changes in our body, right? And they know, Hey, this person has a very high adrenaline rate in their body right now. And they're acting aggressively toward us. This is a threat. And, um, and so if that's the only time they've ever been trained to bite, then that's a pretty safe time to bite. Right. And then even in those situations, if their handler tells them not to bite, we use the command, leave it, then they shouldn't bite unless their handler is physically attacked. So that's kind of, we say that's the only time they can break obedience is if the handler is attacked because for us, biting is obedience. We use the uh, command take, right? And I've got four dogs loose in my RV right now and I'm saying take and they're not doing anything because my verbal is not communicating for them to actually bite. But that's the word we use. So we'll tell the dogs to take. And even if they're going, that guy doesn't look like he's being aggressive. But again, the dog is a three-year-old reasoning capability. I have an adult human reasoning capability. I can see they're drawing a knife or they're doing whatever that would justify that attack. And I go, go attack that person. And, uh, and then they go and do it because it's an obedience uh, situation. Now, when the person starts to fight, the dog ramps the fight up to the level of fight that the person brings to them. So if I'm fighting really, really hard, the dog fights back really, really hard. If I stand there and do nothing, and we do these drills a lot on the field, and I go, ow, ow, you're biting me, and I don't move, the dog will, will run in because they've been told to, right? Run in and bite that person. So they run in, they bite, and I literally, I just stand there and I say, ow, ow, that hurts. Stop it. And the dog will, will bite and then they'll let go and they'll kind of cock their head sideways at me and be like, you're not doing anything. <laughs> and then sometimes they just kind of stand there and watch me. And sometimes they go back to their handlers and they're like, yeah, he's not fighting. Like there's nothing to do. He, he's not a threat. He's not fighting us. And, uh, and they can sense it, right? They can sense whether I'm being aggressive and I'm fighting or whether uh, I'm being passive and, oh, you probably shouldn't fight that guy right now. And because as a civilian, as a citizen, it, even if the person's in your house and, you know, a lot of people get all hoo hoo blah, 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 about, oh, if somebody comes to my house, I'm going to shoot them dead. And it's like, well, if they're there to cause you harm, yes. But if you're coming home and it was a burglary, should they be there? No. Should there be consequences? Yes. Should those consequences be death? Probably not. Right now. But again, Texas, Florida, you can. You can walk in and just shoot them. Right, because in order to give people the freedom to truly defend themselves, you have to open it up to areas where maybe they shouldn't have, because that's just how laws work, right? And um, 
anytime you start putting limitations on, then any little thing where the person messed up, they could go to jail. So they go, we want people to protect themselves here. You can shoot anybody in your house that shouldn't be there. And, um, well, there are, I could come up with 20 scenarios off the top of my head for why somebody's in your house and shouldn't be there. Or maybe you initially thought they shouldn't be there when maybe they should be there. Like you told a guy to come repair your toilet and he left the door open and forgot. And, um, or your teenager, you know, come came home from college in the middle of the night drunk because you were the closest house and, you know, you don't want to just shoot your teenager. And, and there are, sadly, there are stories like that, um, you know, where people have shot their own children because they wake up in the middle of the night, hear noise in the kitchen, come around the corner, see a silhouette and pull the trigger. It's like, OK, so we need to think about how to apply force here. And the easiest way to train a dog to do it in a way that is safest for the handler and the dog is only when there's aggression. So let's uh, shift gears a little bit here. So with dog training, we get a lot of people that want their dogs to do certain things or want their dogs to not do certain things. Uh, and the coolest thing that I have found through my journey here is, um, is a realizing that you can solve a problem and that you just have to do the work to solve it. Uh, and B uh, understanding that you can have your dog do anything that you want to encourage them to do, but all of any encouragement that you give to your dog comes with a price. There's, um, it's, it's just a simple math and logistics issue. If I encourage my dog to do this thing, then I'm basically discouraging them to do this other thing. So I get clients a lot that go, uh, I have one client. I love him to death. Super cool dude. Uh, really fun to be around, but, uh, our session started with our first one was, I want my dog to stop biting people and objects that it shouldn't. But I also want to wrestle with my dog and encourage him to bite me and let him bite anything he wants without being corrected. And I don't ever want to discipline him. And I thought, well, that's a <clears throat> yeah, it doesn't classic, work that way. It's your classic cake and eat it too. Well, you can have whatever you want, but you have to do the things to make that work. That's all. So it's yeah. just understanding. So it's kind of like you equation. can have whatever you want, but you can't have everything you want. Yeah. You have to pick and choose. Yeah, so there's a, a couple of those things. Um, everything you train your dog to do will have positive and negative consequences, right? So, um, you know, if you want to be overly playful with your dog, then training a lot of obedience into your dog will make them slightly less playful, right? Um, but when your dog is overly playful, they're also much less disciplined. So then, you know... Oh, I want to play and encourage my dog to jump up on me when I want them to, but I don't want them to jump up on other people. Well, again, three-year-old reasoning capabilities. They don't know you're wearing your Sunday best right now. They don't know that's a tuxedo and you're getting ready to go to a wedding. They don't, like, those things mean nothing to them, right? So if they get to jump up, then they get to jump up. and uh, Or if they don't get to jump up, then they don't get to jump up. And, uh, it's, it's, you know, you, you can have e it either way, but you have to decide. And, and I will often phrase things that way for clients, because when I sell a trained dog to clients, I, I put a lot of discipline into the dogs and I say, now, you know, you may not want all the discipline that's in this dog in your life because it's going to require you to be disciplined to maintain it. But I would encourage you to back off of that discipline very slowly until you find the place where you're both comfortable with the level of discipline and it's not an annoying level of a lack of discipline. And, um, 
And then the other thing that I, I find humorous with kind of the uh, expectations of clients sometimes is the idea of, um, okay, I want my dog to be confident, let's say, when I go out into public. But, oh, they don't like carts, so stay away from carts. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, love when it. you go shopping, <laughs> carts are a part of shopping. So our philosophy on, on any, any problem, really, but that's just an easy example to bring up, is we don't stay away from the problem. That's not how you solve a problem. We go into the problem. So if the, the dog jumps up, then I correct the dog in scenarios where the dog would jump up. So anytime you have a problem, biting is one that is problematic for most people to solve on their own because it's difficult to let a dog bite without injury, right? Yeah. So, um, so you have to have somebody who has the ability um, to protect themselves in the scenario uh, so that it can be corrected. And then they also have to have the knowledge that if the dog decides to turn that biting aggression toward their handler, how to fix that and, and keep the person relatively safe. Um, of course, there's no guarantees in that, but um, you have to go into the problem. If the dog doesn't like bicycles and roller, you know, roller skates or skateboards, then you have to expose them to roller skates and skateboards. If the dog bites children when they run by, you have to create a scenario where that's what the dog is wanting to do so that you can correct it. You know, and, there, and there's safe ways to set these up initially, but, um, you know, dogs that bite have to be given the opportunity to bite so that you can correct it when they do. Otherwise, you're not fixing the problem. You might avoid the problem, um, but you're not fixing the problem. And uh, so, yeah, that, that's one of the situations is you have to create the problem so that you can fix the problem. Uh, and usually they realize there's a problem by accident. Oops, I didn't want that to happen. My dog bit somebody or my dog did whatever. And um, yeah, I'll often get the, the statement well, I don't want any protection training in my dog because I don't want my dog to bite people. And I'm like, well, if you do your protection training properly with stability, then you're more confident that your dog won't bite people because it's been trained out of them. It, you know, they've been trained to bite, but they've also been trained not to bite in any other situation. And if your dog has never been trained not to bite, then you as the handler just don't know when it's going to happen. And uh, do I still have you? Yep, I got you. Loud and clear. So a, a common phrase I'll hear in clients when they um, when they have a, a aggression or a biting problem is, you know, I'll get a call and it's usually semi-panicked. And it's like, I was here and this happened and my dog bit either another dog or a person. And they'll always say, and it came out of nowhere. <laughs> and I usually don't smash them on the phone, but even in their first day of training, they get a, a pretty good smashing because I say it never fucking comes out of nowhere. They might've been telling you for six months that they were going to bite that thing. And you just got used to it. And then when they bit, you're surprised that they bit. It's like me telling you every day, I'm going to punch you in the face. I'm going to punch you in the face. Hey, I'm going to punch <laughs> you in the face. Get ready for it. It's coming. I'm going to punch you in the face. And then I punch you in the face and you act surprised. Right? Well, you know, I've been telling you for six months, I'm going to punch you in the face. So as soon as the dog gets on the field and I see aggression or I see targeting, I go, you see that right there? And, you know, they usually go, oh, yeah, even though they don't because they're not familiar with their dog's mannerisms yet. But I'm like, I want you to start watching for it because that is your dog telling you they're going to bite something. The, and, one, uh, the, most, the common one I see is uh, when we tell our 
we teach our clients the leave it command and yes. the dog goes, Oh, I want to pick that thing up from the ground. And the handler goes, no, just leave it. And the dog goes, okay, but I'm going to look at it and I'm going to stare at it. And I'm going to get right over it. And the handler goes, good, leave it. And you go, yes. no, that is They're the dog telling it. you, I want that. And I'm going to get it at some point. So you're praising your dog for visually targeting and getting ready to pounce instead of yep. having your dog ignore something. Yeah, well, we do that in our stability training a lot with the clients. And my trainers that help me with train my dogs have gotten over this. But everybody in their early stages uh, has an issue with this at some point where, you know, they go, I, I'm walking up and I, you know, we're doing a stability drill. So I say, tell your dogs to leave it. They're not to bite. And I walk up to the dog and I can see the look on the dog's face. They're getting ready to bite. Right. And, but they're still sitting there beside their handler as I'm walking up and they'll go, good, leave it. And I always, when I hear them say, good, leave it. And their dog's not leaving it as I just shove my arm right in the dog's face and the dog smashes it every time. <laughs> and I'm like, I want it. I say, it's okay that that happened because you're still trying to learn your dog's mannerisms, but whatever you saw in your dog that you thought was leaving it, that wasn't leaving it because they bit me. So in the beginning, we actually train our dogs that when we say leave it, they're to look away from mm -hmm. it, right? Oh, they're physically to stop looking at the thing, which can be kind of difficult in the beginning when, you know, hey, I'm going to hurt you if you don't defend yourself. And then the handler starts going, okay, now leave that thing alone. And the dog's going, well, but if I leave it alone, it's going to hurt me. And so, you know, in the very initial um, stability training sessions, the dogs will actually start breaking obedience, right? So what they'll do is they'll go, okay, well, you told me I can't bite, but you also taught me that he's going to hurt me. So then if you're not going to let me bite him, I'm just going to move away from him. And, uh, and then, that, that becomes a trust-building exercise between the handler and the dog where they go, it's okay, I see it, leave it alone. And then the dog slowly starts to learn, oh, when my person tells me it's okay, then it's okay. And the reflexes are so fast that they can then counter when something when and if something does happen. But it, that's you know all part of the process is leaving it means not even thinking about doing it. Uh, I like the, the lock-picking stuff that I teach, and I have since I was a kid because it's like it's it's so it's so shocking to your what you expect that it's almost like magic so you say i the only way you can get through this lock is if you have the key right that's what everyone learns it's locked i can't get in i need the key and when you take out a little tiny little paperclip sized piece of metal and you go kachink we're in it's shocking to people and surprising uh that their expectations are are just so overwhelmed and I think that leave it command, when you tell your dog to not even look at something, that's like magic to me. So uh, when we correct the dog, we go, hey, leave that thing alone. And we correct them. And then they look back at that thing. And when you do this properly, as soon as my dog looks at the thing, I correct him again. And I say, no, leave it alone. And then they look over again and I correct him and I go, no, leave it alone. And they once they understand, oh, I can't even look at it. Got it. It's funny to see my, my dog sits there. And there's something they want. I tell them, I tell the dog to leave it and they go, yep, got it. And then I watch their eyes go, well, I want to look over there, but I know I can't. So I'm not even going to look. Uh -huh. and it's funny. It's funny seeing that drift where they go, maybe I should look. Nope. Can't do it. Can't do it. Can't do it. And it's just, yeah, they're like, 
in, in that sense, they're like teenagers, right? So they always are pushing the envelope to see, you know, what can I get away with? And, uh, and so they'll learn, okay, I'm supposed to turn my face away from the thing, but can I turn my eyes toward it as long as my face isn't toward it? And, um, and, and at some point, the dog develops enough discipline and the handler and dog get enough confidence in each other that you can allow them to look in that direction and you know they're going to leave it alone. But if you don't start with a high level of discipline and a high expectation, it's difficult to get back down to that level of confidence where I can just go leave it and I can let them look at a guy who maybe looks sketchy and I know they're not going to bite that guy because when I tell my dogs to leave it, they leave it. You know, it's always funny to me though, is like you're mentioning that kind of, you know, when a, when a lock pops and, and it's like, Oh my goodness, that's amazing. When I get the most compliments out of my dogs where people are like the most shocked, the most like, Oh my goodness, I can't believe that your dog does that is when I go to a conference and I put the dog on a box or in a, in a position and I just tell them, stay there. Right. And they'll stay there for like a day, like six, eight hours of a conference. They'll just stay on this box. And people are like, how do you teach your dog to do that? And I'm like, you've got a video in front of you on the table playing of that dog ripping a bad guy to pieces. And you're most impressed with the fact that they lay on a box all day. Like, that's the easy thing to teach a dog to do. Laying on a box or staying in a position is so easy. Well, I guess I should say it's so simple, right? Because yeah. it's it takes discipline. So it's not easy. Yeah. But it's very simple. All you do is you repeat this over and over again until the dog doesn't move anymore. And um, and they're like, "What? No way! That doesn't work." And I'm like, "Oh, it works. You just have to do it." The problem in the in the equation is you, because you're lazy, and so you're not going to do what you're supposed to do. And then the dog, then because you didn't do what you were supposed to do, won't do what it's supposed to do because the dog always reflects the handler. I can give a trained dog to somebody and it will come back three months later and I will go, you're doing this, this, and this, aren't you? And some, you know, most people just look bashfully at me like, well, was I not supposed to do that? And I'm like, it depends on what you want out of your dog. If you're okay with the behavior they're having right now, then keep doing it. If you don't like that behavior and you want it to end, then you have to stop doing those things because you're training your dog to do these things by the fact that you're not requiring them not to do them that's i wanted to touch on your pillars at least a little bit and even if we do just one of them uh here at the end which i freaking love training and operations that are based on principles and your pillars are basically principles um and i like the one probably the my most favorite is you are responsible for everything your dog does and fails to do and i tell all my yeah. clients that's good and bad news it's bad news because now you have to bear that burden and that weight of understanding that every time your dog will quote unquote fails, if we call it that, then you have either encouraged or allowed that to happen. And that sucks. So that, that pillar is the way I use it is I tell them, yes, in one hand, that's for me to place blame on you. And that's bad. The good news is if you're responsible for everything your dog does and fails to do, that means you can affect everything your dog does and fails to do so that you can't knowing that that means you can fix things you just have to identify yep. it and do the work it's empowering well it's yes. kind of the idea that responsibility whether you know you have it or you don't know you have it 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 always 
cuts both directions. I, mm-hmm. I, uh, I was in a conference one time. This may even have been where I got the, that statement from. Um, I don't remember exactly, but I was in this conference one time and there was, it was about entrepreneurship. So, you know, as I was trying to get ready to start the business and all that kind of stuff, I used to go to these entrepreneurial conferences and this guy, um, he said, what do you think of when someone, or what do kids usually do when a parent walks into the room and says, who did that? Right. Who did this is you hear, not me, not me, not me. Right. Nobody wants to be responsible for it. He's like, but if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you should want to be responsible for everything because if you're responsible for it, that means you control it. And if you're not responsible for it, that means you have no control over it. So you want to be responsible for everything. If somebody says, who's responsible for this? Even if it's a bad thing, I'm like me. Yep. I screwed that one up. And in, in the military, I, I learned that as a, so I took command in the military as a senior captain. Most of the time you get command as a junior captain, right? You, you go to captain's career course as one of the first things you do as a captain or uh, right before you make captain sometimes. And then you typically come back and, and go right into a command, which to me is stupid because it's like this person just barely learned how to be a platoon leader. And now you're throwing them into a company. But I had the blessing of I spent a number of years in staff and even deployed before I took command. So I had a lot of understanding of how things happened at battalion and brigade levels. And um, and my the younger captains of all the other companies that were in our battalion, the, the commanders would get yelled at all the time and they would just keep trying to defend themselves. Right? Screw this up, blah, blah, blah. You know, the battalion commander's yelling at them or whatever. And they're like, oh, well, sir, you see, uh, it's really not my fault because this and that, and blah, 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 or whatever, you know, what, however they wanted to try and justify it. And my commander would, I, you know, because we all screw up all the time. So my commander would be like, Riles, you screwed the pooch on this one. And I'd go, yes, sir, I did. I'll try to suck less next time. And they just go, okay, and move on. And the officers who were always trying to explain it away, they would just smash them. And I'm like, how do you guys not see this? How do you not see it? The, uh, I, but I would do the same thing with, um, with soldiers when I had to discipline soldiers. Is if I said, you did this and you screwed up. And they went, yes, sir, I did. I'll try not to do it again. I would go, okay. And I'd give them a little slap on the wrist as long as they weren't repeat offenders. And I'd say, good job. Go about your business. Go do great and wonderful things. If they were like, well, sir, it wasn't my fault because X, Y, and Z. I'd give them the maximum punishment I could give them. Because I'm like, never make excuses. If you screw up, own your failure and then move on. So that whole idea of being responsible, if you look at it the right way, can be incredibly empowering. And um, But it, it's, a, it's a change in mindset because we've largely been oh, trained yeah. in society to, oh, no, don't, don't be responsible because people who are responsible get in trouble. <clears throat> and it's kind of like the rebels in us go, who the fuck is that person to tell me I'm in trouble? Like, they don't have jurisdiction to, to yell at me. Or even if they do, what's the worst thing they could do? Fire me? So? Like, I never understood the fear of getting in quote-unquote trouble. I, I got yelled at by every commander I ever had. And, and usually, like, behind closed doors yelled at. You know, like, 
I will fire you. And I'm like, okay, then fire me. And they're like, damn it, I'm not going to fire you, but you called my bluff. <laughs> so now I have to do something else. And it's like, you know, just who cares? Who cares if you get in trouble? What you should care about is, am I doing the right thing? Am I being responsible? Am I taking care of the things that I'm supposed to be taking care of, like my dog? And if I'm doing those things, then I'm good. Uh, we are over an hour, and this was fantastic. And this was kind of higher level today. Um, if you're listening to this point and you're like, yeah, but how do I start? What do I do? What's the entry stuff? Um, the two previous episodes we did, I will link them in today's show notes. Um, but let's give uh, let's give you the open floor, Joel. So any plugs, any events, any websites, social media you got, drop all of it here for everybody, please. Uh, well, real quick, I think it's uh, it's fair or it's uh, you know uh, reasonable for us to say uh, me and Pat have been working together for a couple of years. Pat runs a uh, franchise, a Canaan Academy franchise in Texas. So mm-hmm. his references to dog training, uh, and that's under me. And then Pat also um, is, I guess we could call it an affiliate. Um, yep. Where if you have heard about me through his podcast and you tell me that, uh, he gets a 10% kickback on the dog sale. So this applies to dog sales, uh, whether it's a puppy or a trained dog. And you, the person, get a 10% discount on your dog purchase. Uh, and you can uh, contact me either Instagram or Facebook. On Instagram, I'm at Fortress Canine. And that is the word Fortress, F-O-R-T-R-E-S-S, and then the letter K and the number nine. So whenever you see K-9 in any of my companies, it's the letter K, the number nine. Uh, so uh, at Fortress K-9 is my Instagram uh, handle. At Fortress K-9 Dogs is my Facebook handle. Uh, I'm on MeWe as well, Fortress K-9 and K-9 Academy. It's like an ampersand in between them. Um, and then uh, you can find me on YouTube uh odyssey which is another video streaming platform um and so i'm on those kind of places you can just search for fortress canine over there uh we do also have canine academy uh, which is our dog training and we have an online version of that that you can find at canineacademyonline.com and again that's the letter k the number nine and then we uh, i have the podcast protection dog podcast we get into a lot of these kinds of topics uh, there's a lot of philosophy on there because most people mess up because their philosophy is poor. Um, and so we, we get into a lot of defensive philosophy, a lot of things like that. And uh, and so if you're interested in checking that out, it's Protection Dog Podcast. Not the Protection Dog Podcast, just Protection Dog Podcast, because it bothers me that every podcast starts with the word the. So I decided not to do that on mine. Uh, and then we also have one that is based in preparedness called Fortress survival and uh, we have an event coming up in january that pat will be at and uh as well as a bunch of other people uh lots and lots of good training you can find out more information about it at fortresssurvival.us not.com it's fortresssurvival.us and then at the top in the menu you'll see uh a it's called the hard skills uh practical workshop and uh, we're going to be learning lots of exactly what the title says, hard skills. We're going to be hands-on doing stuff. So we may show you how to do something. Here's how you uh, conduct a suture. Here's how you you know do stitches on an open wound. And then we're going to give you uh, a little testing uh, pad that is like skin, and you're going to actually practice suturing wounds. Here's how you set a bone on a uh, you know if a dog has a broken bone. And then we're going to have goats or pigs or something like that carcasses. And we're going to break their bone and say, come over here and set this bone. Um, So we're going to be doing a lot of 
on uh, hands-on hard practical skills uh, in that event. You can find out more information about that at FortressSurvival.us. And uh, so I think that's everything. That's January 21 through 23 of 2022. Yes. Okay. Perfect. So that's a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then if you're interested in doing a follow-on firearms course, Rich Graham, who will also be a presenter, uh, and he has a website, uh, Full Spectrum Warrior. Um, I think that one's also .us. Uh, and so you can find out a little bit more information about him, and we'll be he'll be giving a discount for a B-Foam course um, on Monday following that event. So if you want to plan a four-day weekend and do a bunch of awesome stuff, that would be a great time to do it. And in Florida in January, the weather's really nice. Yeah. All of these links will be in the show notes if you go to uncensoredtactical.com and click on blog. That's where all of our podcast episodes and articles are listed, uh, order of newest to oldest. And uh, just click on this episode, which I think will be 186, if I'm correct. Um, And that'll be much easier just to click through and find Joel in the event uh, really easily. Outstanding. All right, folks. It's been a pleasure. Cool, Joel. The only downside was... The only downside was it wasn't evening time and we weren't drinking alcohol while we were talking. Yeah, just soda for me today. <laughs> me too, monster. <laughs> All right, we will see All right, you man, soon. it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yep. Fortress Canine Podcast.